Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and geopolitics. Uh, in lieu of our in-person SALT conference, which many of you have attended, uh, we've been hosting these SALT Talks to provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts and also to provide a platform for big, important ideas uh, that we think are shaping the future. Um, we're very excited today to welcome Afsani Beshlas to SALT Talks. Um, Afsani was, was doing, I like to say, was doing ESG before ESG was cool. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of the Rock Creek Group, which is a leading global investment firm uh, that applies data-driven technology and innovation to sustainable investing. Uh, Rock Creek has about $14 billion in assets under management uh, in multi-asset class portfolios, including public, private, and early stage markets. Uh, Rock Creek is one of the largest women-founded uh, investment firms in the world, with more than 80% of its senior management team being diverse. Uh, Rock Creek's ad advisory board is a star-studded group of people. It includes former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, uh, Laura Tyson, who's also on the board of CBRE and AT&T, Jessica Einhorn, who's also on the board of BlackRock, uh, Deanne Julius, Caroline Atkinson, and Leaquat Ahmed. Uh, previously, Afsani was a managing director and a partner at Carlisle Group. Uh, she was the treasurer and the chief investment officer at the World Bank, and she also worked at Shell International and JP Morgan. Uh, Afsani has advised governments, central banks, regulatory agencies, sovereign wealth funds, and public and private companies on global public policy, financial policy, energy policy, and sustainable investing. Uh, she spent around 14 years, I believe, at the World Bank, and she worked on energy investments and policy work in the sustainable investing space. Uh, including in climate-related renewable energy, power, and infrastructure projects. And she was the founder of the World Bank's Natural Gas Group, uh, and she pioneered you know, work uh, using natural gas as a transitional fuel in order to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, Afsani is also on the board of the Institute for Advanced Study uh, at Princeton. Uh, she's on the Council for Foreign Relations. She's on the Gavi uh, Vaccine Alliance, uh, the World Resources Institute, and she's also the vice chair of uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting. She's also the recipient of the Institutional Investor Lifetime Achievement Award and the Robert F. Kennedy Ripple of Hope Award. She was recognized as one of American bankers' most powerful women in banking and one of Barron's 100 most influential women in finance. Uh, she has a master's in philosophy with honors in economics from the University of Oxford, where she taught international trade and economic development. She's the co-author of The Economics of Natural Gas and the author of numerous journal articles on energy, finance, and sustainable investing. If you have any questions for Afsani during the talk today, a reminder, type them into the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And conducting the interview today will be Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Uh, and he's also the chairman of SALT. So I'll turn it over to Anthony uh, to conduct the interview. John, thank you. It's a real pleasure to be on. Uh, that's not a great to see you. And uh, I wanted to just start out with your personal background because I think it's a fascinating background. Obviously, John gave a lot of uh, elements of your biography, but uh, I think the early part of your story is uh, fascinating for me and I know other people would be interested as well. Thank you, Anthony. And uh, thank you, John, for that kind introduction. And congratulations, Anthony, on both uh, what you're doing at SALT and also um, the great news at Skybridge on all fronts. Well, yeah, well, we're, we're coming back, you know, but, you know, just, just when we're coming back, some of our girlfriends are leaving, but that's fine. You know, we, 
that does happen to you when you're having a bad moment, but uh, no problem. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm playing the song for all of our investors. Should I stay or should I go? Uh, and my, and my attitude, unfortunately, is if you want to leave, go ahead, but you're going to miss some great performance, but we can, we can go into that at another time. Let's talk about you and uh, your, your personal background, which I think is so fascinating. Sure. Um, I was born in Iran, um, a very different Iran, which was very fast moving. Uh, it was uh, developing very rapidly in terms of its economy, but also in terms of education, health, everything was sort of becoming very uh, close to first world versus third world. And um, I grew up in a, a, in a family that really, really valued education. My father was president of a university. He always taught at some, in some form all his life. Um, my mother decided to stay home. I'm one of three uh, daughters. And um, I think the pressure she put on us in terms of not letting us learn to cook, for example, at an early stage um, has affected my relationship with my family now. But on the, <laughs> on the positive side, she really, she and my father said, whatever you decide to do, you have to do your absolute best. It doesn't matter um, what it is, but you do have to do your best. So there was that sense, and there was always a sense of um, sort of public service also in our household, given that uh, a lot of my family was in education. Um, so that's where I grew up. I came to the States the first time when I was 16, and there was a program still exists called the American Field Service, and I came as an exchange student and lived in Concord, Mass., uh, which is not your typical uh, U.S. Um, city, but for me, it was my first experience and really a hugely exciting one. Uh, I lived with a family where the father taught at MIT and uh, the kids were kind of around my age group, went to school and, um, and then um, basically decided to get into economics. The interesting thing is when I was at Concord, our neighbor across the street was Robert Solo, who, you know, at the time I didn't know, uh, sure. world, uh, you know, class economist, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, so, so I um, went on eventually to Oxford and uh, did my master's degree in economics uh, with the idea that I might go teach and do sort of economic development. But then there was something called the Iranian revolution and uh, my plans got derailed. So that's how I ended up at JP Morgan. Uh, they have the most incredible training program. J JP Morgan uh, in London or where were you? So I was hired in JP Morgan London because that's where I was, I was uh, studying and teaching at, uh, at Oxford doing, working on my thesis. And, and um, so that's where I got um, hired, but then I moved to New York and um, literally, I think it might've been um, when um, the hostage crisis was also sort of uh, going on. Um, couldn't have had a better experience. Uh, JP Morgan at that time was very team oriented, the culture, the values, um, very different than banking today in general, and uh, made some of my best um, friends then. And um, then it became evident that um, the plans of going back home to teach and to do economic development were not going to happen. And uh, I decided to go to the World Bank, which allows you to do economic development, help reduce poverty, and um, use market uh, tools to do those things. So that was that. And I had a great career first uh, doing energy and, um, as John said, clean energy on the uh, early side uh, of the cycle and then moved to finance. I was talking to a friend of mine um, 
at um, the World Bank and he said, we have this great trading floor, you should come try it. And I said, I have never traded before. And he said, well, take it, you know, try it. So that's how I ended up to move to finance. And the and rest- so, talk, talk, so, so talk about the starting of Rock Creek and where is Rock Creek today? And I'm assuming it's named after the Rock Creek in Washington, right? Is that? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it is the park in Washington. It's right. a beautiful park and it has become even more busy um, since post-COVID where it's almost like the Champs-Élysées. You can't, you can't run or walk or bike. There's so many people on it. Um, so uh, in terms of um, um, Rock Creek, um, had a great experience at the World Bank and, um, and moved uh, to go to Carlisle as the 12th partner at Carlisle, and, um, and then decided to start Rock Week. And we started like you with uh, alternatives and then um, evolved the firm to be more multi-asset class. We have two businesses really. One is sort of developing our own um, slew of funds uh, and the other side is doing multi-asset class portfolios in a very customized way for fairly sophisticated large institutions. But you're also involved in ESG investing. I mean, that's one of your big claims to fame. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us what excited you about that. And tell us where you think we are in that part of the cycle. So I think ESG, impactful investing, sustainable investing is sort of different terms. And, um, and it's become very popular as we speak. Um, I think what I learned when I was at the World Bank, the first thing I, I think I was a summer intern there once, and I did a paper on shadow pricing. And what I realized as an economist then and um, very early on is that we do uh, have prices for capital, for labor. We don't have prices for the environment. We don't have prices for the air we breathe, for the water we drink, for you know, the uh, agricultural land in the sense of the soil and the goodness uh, versus you know, the value of the land itself. So there was um, sort of interesting that we call those things externalities. So what we realized at the World Bank is that you have to somehow value these. And that was pretty early. That was really in the 1990s, early 2000, where you knew that you had to value these, that these were scarce commodities, uh, that you could not just use them and uh, not value them. So that early shadow pricing, I think, study that I did really was very influential. Moving forward to Rock Creek, what we see now is that um, if you actually invest in companies, if you invest through funds or directly in companies that are looking at long-term value, you're going to be better off. Just look at the last uh, couple of months post-COVID. Uh, the companies that have done well have often been at the intersection of technology, which is something new and innovation, plus let's say uh, telemedicine, let's say um, education, let's say, um, you know, um, affordable um, finance. So those are the things that actually have been growing because as we have realized in our society, you cannot just provide services to a small group. As you can provide these services to a bigger group, there will be more demand for it and actually your company will do better. Some of the um, you know, ESG investments during this period um, have done so much better, Anthony. And it's not only because oil and gas were down, and so you see all these ESG funds that are even ETFs in Europe, in the US doing better than the general market. So all you had to do was to invest in an ETF, you would have done better. But obviously if you invest in ESG through um, direct companies, private or public, it has been some of the really most interesting times 
I would say. So, in the so it, it's going to continue, though, in your opinion. So we're, we're not peak cycle or anything like that or anything. You're just at the early stages of it. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I think if we look at your kids, if we look at my kids, if you look at, you know, um, the next generation, people in their 20s, people in their 30s, they're going to be looking more, if, if they decide to buy a car, it's going to be an electric car. You know, they are not going to invest as um, they start investing their own money in things that they are um, companies that don't have their culture or their values. They're going to be much more cognizant of that, I would say, than our generation has been. So that trend is moving fast. We see it with renewable energy, right? If you look in the last um, part of this year, those are the only energy investments that have actually gone on. As oil and gas investing has basically dried up, the projects that got us slowed down a little bit on the renewable side have taken off again. Uh, you know, just a broad question on energy, because I, I know you established the National Gas Group at the World Bank, and you know a lot about energy, and you've seen our demand has been crushed by the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, and you've seen this increase in supply. So what does that mean geopolitically in your mind? We're moving towards ESG and sustainable things. Uh, is that going to set off another potential geopolitical crisis in your mind? I think actually renewable energy is going to be really good for you know, the geopolitical risks that we have been facing the last 30 some years, maybe more since we started using oil. A lot of oil comes from a lot of countries that have gone through political strife or, um, or caused political strife in the Middle East, but other parts of the world. So the less we need to import oil, the better off we are. And you know, I think I prefer to use um, the more sort of cleaner forms of renewable energy, but frankly, natural gas is much cleaner than oil, certainly much cleaner than uh, sure. coal. And batteries are not quite where we would like them to be. Hopefully they will be there soon. But in the meantime, you can't just live off of renewable energy. You do need to have some kind of backup. So natural gas, which is, happens to be something I spend a lot of time on, um, is growing quite fast, both in the US uh, and in emerging markets. So let me say ahead. something contrarian because I, I, I want to get your reaction to it. So I totally understand that our less reliance, we can move our military, we can rethink our footprint. But what I'm wondering about is the stability of the region, meaning the oil consumption goes down, the economies of the region get depressed or they have to change. Will that cause more instability in that region of the world? What's your opinion of that? What you're seeing is sort of what I started seeing during my childhood growing up in Iran, uh, where you saw Iran was trying to not be a one commodity economy. Um, so if you look at the region, Russia is still very commodity based, right? It's most of its um, external revenues are from commodities. If you look in the Gulf countries, that's basically it. It's uh, the, the majority, as you said, of their income and revenues come. And so all those social programs that they put in place, all the construction projects have been financed by this. What has been really interesting, if you look at the investments they're making um, currently, two things. One is that they've been trying to diversify their economy, whether it's towards tourism or whatever you know, they can do. That's one area. They've been 
also using these gigantic um, oil funds they have to diversify again out of energy into other areas. Last but not least, some of the biggest solar projects that are going on are in the Middle East right now. So they're realizing that they themselves need to uh, diversify. So I have um, friends from the World Bank who are in Saudi all the time right now, working on one of the biggest solar plants, which just got it's, it's great news. Yeah. So it just means that a lot of the commodity-based industries and, and countries are turning more towards their intellectual capital. You and I both know there's always been a paradox of the oil. You know, you it comes out of the ground, you overly rely on it, and then you don't build these other industries exactly. that could make the country more sustainable and, and long-term successful. I want to I go to a topic I know that has a, a lot of interest to you, and that is uh, affordable housing. Uh, we, we're under inventoried in affordable housing. And what do you think is holding us back from that? And uh, what do you think the compelling investment opportunities are there? And why did you get so focused and interested in that? So I think on affordable housing specifically, um, what was interesting is we started looking at it a few years ago at Rock Creek. And um, we realized, number one, it happens to be an underinvested area. Number two, it had actually really good returns, especially when it was done by people who do good while they're doing well. And you know, there are a few um, groups that have been not vulture um, people investing in affordable housing, but actually very thoughtful, very experienced people. And we partnered up with a group called Rose Affordable. And, um, and what has been really interesting um, is to see that the gap they fill is not just the housing, but it's everything else that goes with housing. It's the community programs, it's providing doctors and medical assistance. And this was pre-COVID. It is making sure that the buildings have internet access. And so all of those things meant that their population in the last few months has obviously suffered less. Uh, it also means if your uh, population is more healthy, they will continue to work. If you do have broadband access and internet access, your kids can continue with their education. Uh, as we saw, that became a big issue in many areas. Plus, of course, they also benefit from government programs. I think what we're seeing with affordable housing is that it falls into lots of different categories, but there's a huge shortage where a very large uh, part of our population, and the data is different, but it's almost um, you know, 10 to 12 billion, uh, to 20 to 12 million, um, um, families that are basically um, not being uh, able to afford the housing very well. They're spending more than half of their income on housing. So there's very little left for everything else. And one of the reasons, you know, when we keep on saying, why is the economy growing so slowly? This is again pre-COVID. When you have to spend so much of your, um, of your income on housing, you cannot spend it on other things. The other trend in the U.S. has been that profit margins are much higher for luxury housing. So when builders have the ability, they will go into those areas versus affordable housing. Last but not least, something which is really important because we've all been trying to um, support our communities, particularly people on the front lines, teachers, firefighters, you know, those populations that are middle income families, middle to middle lower uh, families, they actually are completely not taken care of when it comes to housing. They have very little access to affordable because they don't fit into either the low income affordable, neither 
the luxury housing. So there is a big shortage of housing in our country. Well, and, and, and it's a good segue to, you've traveled the world, you're an economist, you're a money manager, uh, and we both analyze the world. And I think you potentially share this worry that I have that there's a, there's an income gap widening. There's a wealth gap widening. Lower and middle income people feel like they're struggling. And as you and I have talked in the past, I, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood with blue collar parents, but they had this aspirational idea about their children. And that idea is shifting now. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you've done any research into that, studied it, and what do you think we could do to solve some of those problems concomitant to the housing situation? Um, I think housing is part of it, but also, you know, wages and incomes are another part of it. And um, the inequality that, you know, all the numbers are pointing um, to what I learned, as you said, uh, both at school, studying economics and economic development, but then also um, um, working in emerging markets. What is really sad is that a lot of the issues that existed in emerging markets started getting slowly a little better although we can come back to that because a lot of the development, let's say in Latin America over the last 20 years might have got erased just in the last few months, which is huge. Um, but when you come to the US, uh, we developed a great banking sector, but that banking sector is really for, um, for people who can afford it. It's for bigger corporations, right? So even in the good days before COVID or before the um, 2008 crisis, what we had is that, um, you know, a lot of low-income people had to go to the payday lenders, right? If you um, wanted to get a mortgage, you couldn't. Uh, in fact, a lot of startups who invested in would look at uh, credit scores in a very different way than traditional credit scores and do better in terms of um, having uh, people who were borrowing from them who had a much uh, better record, as it turned out, than the typical banks giving mortgages. So I think this is a really great time to think in two ways. One is, for example, the World Bank was created to help Japan get out of the, um, you know, it's uh, get out of the war and reconstruct and Europe, the same thing. And then its job became how, to, how do you provide long-term development to poor countries? We need that kind of institution in our country, in the US today, institution that will have the interest of providing services to low income. Um, That's fascinating, um, it's a good idea. So it's almost like a USAID embedded in a World Bank for the United States, you know? Or separate, separate from the World Bank. But a lot of those tools and, you know, um, for example, uh, in these countries, there are, um, there are banking systems for low income. So See, let's see when when John when D John Dorsey runs for president, he's going to make yeah. you the chairman of that bank. That's actually a very very good idea. I so I have, I have to turn it over to him in a second, okay? And we're going to talk about his stuffed animals and so forth. But <laughs> but before we go over there, because there's a ton of questions coming in, people are fascinated by you, uh, as am I. But I have to ask this question. Some of us remember the very famous Alan Greenspan briefcase. And if you yeah. recall, he would run across the street. If the briefcase was thick, we were getting a rate cut. If it wasn't thick, we weren't getting one. And so does he still have the briefcase? I mean, it's important for me to know this. So I just thought I would throw it out there. Oh, absolutely. He has his briefcase in his office. Um, and uh, let me tell you, Alan is 94. He, until COVID, <laughs> he would come to the office 
every day. And some nights on a Friday afternoon, if I'm trying to sneak out, Alan is still there. So I had to sneak around his office. And, um, and one of the sadnesses for me of COVID has been that, you know, whenever there was a problem, I would, when serious problem or issue or markets, you know, had, um, were going through some really, really high volatility, I'd go to Alan and get his wise counsel. And, you know, his suitcase is there. And by the way, there's one other item you should be aware of that he keeps. Uh, which is his G7 jacket. So it's like a really nice piece that he wears when it's when um, the room is too cold. And, it's and like it was like swag from the G7. It's so cool, John. It's you got to pay so attention because we need we need better salt swag. Okay, that's one of the you know once we get back out there, right? I'll send you a picture. All right. So I want to see that. I have one more questions. Again, these are personal curiosity questions. Forgive me. Uh, Leah Quad Ahmed, yes. who is at the Brookings Institute, he's on your board. He wrote a brilliant book, Lords of Finance, yes. discussing the 1929-33 crisis and the policy implications and some mistakes that were made, et cetera, that could have exacerbated that crisis. Uh, uh, Dr. Greenspan obviously spoken about that. So has Dr. Bernanke. Actually, we had Dr. Bernanke at SALF a few times, and uh, he encouraged me to read that book, which I did. What do you think Leoquad Ahmed thinks about this crisis? And what is your personal uh, opinion about all the deficit spending? Is, is it okay to do it? Is it, are we all modern monetary theorists now? Or will there be some implications long-term to the amount of deficit spending that we are involved in? So Leoquad is really an exceptional person. He was doing, working on Korea and Asia in um, sort of the early days of his career. He's a, got a PhD in economics. We sat next to each other on the World Bank trading floor. He was doing non-US bonds, believe it or not. Uh, and I had just started on the trading desk on the US side. And then he went on to Fisher Francis. So he has an unbelievable interesting background as an economist and as somebody who understands markets. And um, which is why this book is so incredibly interesting. And um, you know, I hope you put him um, uh, you do invite him to your uh, SALT conference and to your oh, we, uh, Yeah, we would love to do that, of course. He's great. And he's always interviewing, you know, all the Fed, uh, Fed chairs um, and has really good insight. Um, and his book showed us uh, what happens in a crisis, which is why when it came out, um, you know, it was so interesting uh, around 2008. I think what we have learned is that uh, both um, then and now is that this is not business as usual. You have a health crisis and a financial crisis and an inequality and and, and, and you got energy too right so it's health equality energy is the price shock in energy so and energy sector by the way interestingly about energy is that it's a very impactful um, area because we all use energy but for in, in terms of its total size in the u.s economy it has got much smaller as relative to communications or or technology or other side other areas but it still employs a lot of people obviously so so if you put all of that together there is no choice right so we do need to uh, increase the deficit what i'm concerned about as we're looking at the numbers is that what, what happened the last uh, few months? Markets went up, a small sliver of people who can invest, who have the ability to invest, who have the cash to invest, investors, so they got better off. Really the majority of people who were laid off are probably not going to find the jobs they wanted coming out of COVID. Um, a lot more dislocation than the markets expected. 
So, and the money that got pushed through PPP or through the Federal Reserve went to all the biggest organizations, right? So, you know, if it's the Federal Reserve, it went through BlackRock, obviously, to, to uh, you know, help solve the bond problem. Why not have used some of that money through smaller firms? Um, all the PPP went initially to bigger businesses than smaller businesses. A lot of small businesses wouldn't even know how to fill those forms. They didn't have banking relationships. So coming out, we have incurred this huge, huge deficit, but what good is going to come out of it? I think that's my big question and that's what I'm worried about. Uh, makes sense. Well, I, I gotta turn it over to John now because we have a whole bevy of questions for you from our uh, viewers and listeners. So go ahead, John. Yeah, we have great participation and engagement on the call. So thank you for everyone that's tuning in. Um, I have a couple questions about Rock Creek that came in. You talk about how, how the firm focuses very heavily on leveraging data and technology to drive your investment decisions. You're also very focused on sustainable investing or ESG investing, uh, which some people regard as an amorphous still. People are, are trying to identify exactly you know, what ESG investing is. So how do you combine data and technology to drive investment decisions uh, when you're investing in you know, things that are sustainable and, and fit within the ESG framework? So John, very early when we started Rock Week, we invested a lot in technology. And what that allowed us to do is that with our data scientists and uh, data researchers, we were able to get uh, data from whatever we invested in or whatever uh, thousands of uh, investment firms that we covered and companies. So we had, um, as we were looking through this huge amount of data, we realized that the same tools that we had developed for risk management, which allowed us to map different securities to different risks could be used to, for example, look at different securities versus the SDGs that the UN has put out. So we started um, putting these things together and it is really interesting because what you start seeing is that, as you said, there are lots of different measures to um, look at ESG. Some people, you know, if you look at our measure versus a Morgan Stanley measure versus a Bloomberg measure versus, you know, others, you might end up in different places. So what we decided to do with our technology was to create a tool where we can use our own ways of rating a company, but we also can use anybody else's um, so that we don't start becoming um, very rigid and, um, and um, depend on one set of ratings. You're absolutely right. There is no common way to rate things. I think what we do know, like we're talking about housing is, for example, more people of a certain income group now have housing that didn't have before. That is progress and that is a positive thing. So just measuring those numbers is helpful. If you invest in this energy project versus this other one, this is the carbon uh, impact. That is easier to measure. I think some of the things that are harder are more in the social area. But what we're trying to do is to the extent possible, and I wouldn't say it's perfect, as you said, there's a lot of, a lot of um, issues with measurement, but still using the tools we have to come up with uh, some sort of rating and measurement. That's fascinating. Another question uh, about Rock Creek. I said in the intro that Rock Creek is one of the largest women-founded investment firms. Your workforce is 80% diverse. 
So you guys live these governance principles that you look for in companies and funds that you invest in. Why do you think that's important and how does it help you as a firm uh, to arrive at, at good investment decisions? Uh, you know, John, I think what he's allowed us to do is to cast a much wider net. So uh, we invest in small companies as well as large companies. We invest in um, large firms and smaller firms. So what happens um, is that you have, particularly at points of stress in the markets, less, um, less volatility in your total portfolio, we also find that uh, smaller firms um, often are doing something which is relatively unique. So they have a higher possibility of generating alpha versus larger firms uh, who might have more of an average return. So the idea for us also is that in terms of our own team, having people who come together from very, very different backgrounds, um, it means that they come up with different themes. They come up with different ideas and we try to argue um, constructively. Sometimes you know, we disagree and sometimes we agree and we try to come together. But having that um, culture, which is respectful, but allows you to think differently, has really helped us with our returns. Great. Um, the next question is about your time at the World Bank. Uh, you became an expert on the so-called Global South, which is basically another term for developing or emerging economies or a less pejorative uh, term than third world countries. Uh, so what is your view today on the global south and investment opportunities in places like China, Asia, and other developing economies? What has happened, John, uh, over the last uh, especially 15, 20 years is that emerging markets went from a very different place when I started my career in development to, um, to a much better place in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of job opportunities, uh, productivity. And if you look at the growth rates in uh, emerging markets or South versus developed economies, it has basically generally been about at least double the size. So if ours was um, you know, two to 3%, emerging markets would be three to 6%. I think what has happened particularly in the last 15 years was China, as you said. So China has become a huge part of the market. China, when I first went to China, had zero market, right? There was no um, companies to invest in. Um, and the World Bank had just started working with the Chinese and teach, you know, sort of sharing um, US and European and other emerging market um, ideas and ways of investing across their economy. I worked a lot with Sinuk and their energy sector at an early age. And so early stage of um, when they opened. And what happened is that um, China developed so much so that now today, if you look at MSCI, the largest share in MSCI in, is, uh, is North Asia. And then if you throw in uh, India, between China, North Asia, and India, you have almost 80% of MSCI. So the emerging markets now mean something very different. As I was saying earlier to Anthony, my concern now is that China might be a big beneficiary coming out of COVID. As we can see, it might be the only country that might have a positive, just positive 1% plus or minus um, growth rate, everybody else, in particular, if you look at Latin America, if you look at Africa, huge loss of the uh, last 20 years of development. 
And it's really, really important to see how we can do something and help to make sure that that does not go the way it seems to be going, particularly in Latin America. So emerging markets has come to, do, to mean very different things. We are competing with the Chinese, as you well know, on technology, on education, on telemedicine. You know, they're developing so fast in finance. They were able to push money, not just to um, people who had banks, uh, banking relationships, but to every individual, right? So they have been able to create uh, financial infrastructure that is in some ways much more flexible than ours. Great. Uh, uh, we'll get to a couple more questions and then we'll let you go. This has been fascinating. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, you do a lot of your investing at Rock Creek through third-party managers. So you have a direct business and you have a, you know, a fund of funds, multi-manager type business. When you're evaluating managers, how do you evaluate talent and gain an edge through a multi-manager approach? And why do you think a multi-manager approach is often better than, uh, you know, if say a family office or an institution were to try to go direct into certain products? So doing um, multi-manager is, you know, we invest on behalf of some universities and pension funds and others where we put together a customized portfolio. And the advantage there is that there's so much talent out there, so many great firms. And what um, we do is to have these databases that we talked about a little earlier, but also uh, database of new firms, new what we call emerging uh, managers. So emerging managers are firms that are starting their businesses. In fact, um, for example, um, when um, I was at the World Bank, the World Bank um, did the first 5 million investment in Bridgewater. So you would have, um, you know, that was an emerging manager uh, at the time. It was a while back. But we at Drug Week continue to invest in a lot of new managers. And, um, and that um, is because of this large database. And it allows you to create portfolios where you can generate very, very high alpha. Secondly, you can change directions much faster. Uh, thirdly, we were talking about emerging markets. We do a fair bit, let's say, in Asia, in the rest of emerging markets. And it is really important to find talent on the ground. There's no way we can get a team here sitting in New York or Washington or London that is as good as a team that is sitting, you know, in um, the cities in China, in India, in Brazil, in Mexico. They know much better about both the good and the bad. So we find that that way you can um, you can generate much higher returns. So my last question is about uh, you personally as an entrepreneur. So you've repeatedly bet on yourself over the course of your career. You talked about how you started at Carlisle. You established Rock Creek through a management buyout of that business in 2003. Then you recently bought back the balance of the equity of the firm from Wells Fargo, and you're managing about $14 billion. Uh, what has made you successful as an entrepreneur? So John, I didn't really set out to become an entrepreneur. When I was at the bank, I was lucky to start leading groups and I was allowed to do that sort of within a very hierarchical structure. I created unhierarchical structures. So I really enjoyed being part of teams that were on hierarchical and people who were smarter than me coming together to create something good and fun to do. And that sort of started within a very big organization. And I think um, it was really, again, not my plan to start Rock Week or um, later on to, um, to do the last transaction. But as you know, uh, my friends at Wells Fargo also agreed that given that they were in the news every day, 
it made sense that we part ways because um, while we had our separate uh, management, uh, we were the uh, managing partner of that business. I think um, we realized that it was better at that at this point in history to separate or as uh, we separated in 2018. So in terms of sort of being entrepreneurial, I think what uh, is fun for me, um, I actually have been very happy working within big organizations because I worked in Shell, JP Morgan, World Bank, uh, smaller organizations like Carlisle that relative to um, relative to um, uh, the World Bank, and then at Rock Creek, and you know each has its own pros and cons. And what I find is that being an entrepreneur uh, is heavily overrated. It's twenty four by seven, just like all the other jobs that I have done. Um, you know, and uh, at the same time, you can move faster. Let's say you can get your tech team and your investment team to work together to produce something much faster than in a big organization. So that has been really much more fun. Um, and being able to proceed with speed is something that I do enjoy doing and definitely easier uh, with a great team um, that I have been, you know, very fortunate to be part of at Rock Creek. Well, Afsani, we want to thank you again for joining us. You're a rock star. We always enjoy seeing you at, at different events. And we were looking forward to having you out at our SALT conference in Las Vegas in May. Unfortunately, that had to be canceled. But we'll maybe look forward to having you and Leah Quad Ahmed uh, on a panel together at a future SALT conference. But in the meantime, the SALT talk will do. This was fascinating. And thanks again for joining us. Anthony, you have any final words? No, it's just uh, terrific to spend time with you. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to getting together soon. I usually at this moment, Afsani, I start picking on John, but he went with a very plain background this time. He's, he's right. had stuffed animals back there. He's had monkeys. He's a very strange guy, John Darcy. But when he's president, I'm going to make sure that he, he, you're in charge of the World Bank of the United States for this kid. He's going to oh. need a lot of help, Afsani. I, prom I promise oh. you that. But God, God bless you, and thank you, and uh, stay safe. And hopefully we'll see you soon. Thank you for inviting me and, um, and it was really fun to be with you and John. Thank you.